With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Man there trying to stop Joker getting himself into further trouble. Oh, it's not a bad ball for Pelle on the right side. It's Carlos Alberto. And what a great goal that was. Carlos Alberto. Maradona just walked away from Hoddleton. Maldonado. Welcome to the Scoreless Thriller podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Alex, as always, and I'm delighted to be joined by Gary Thacker on the podcast today. Welcome, Gary. Thank you so much for joining me today. Not a problem, Alex. Thanks for inviting me on board. Um, always happy to talk about football for, uh, for a while. <laughs> yeah, um, I invited Gary on to talk about his book, uh, Beautiful Bridesmaids Dressed in Orange, which uh, I have with me here just to prove the prove the the pudding, I guess, <laughs> as he does as well. Uh, just to introduce yourself, maybe a little bit, Gary, for for our listeners, can you tell me a little bit about yourself and also, I mean, the idea behind uh, the book that you wanted to get across? Sure. Um, well, I, I, I came into writing about football quite late in life, so probably in my mid-50s when I sort of uh, made that sort of move. Um, this is my fifth book. Um, uh, I've had a um, a, a very long relationship with these football times. We do podcasts and uh, work for those mag- their magazines as well, um, uh, as well as football uh, football uh, history books such as, as this one, uh, written one of the England of the World Cup. And I've also written a couple of novels um, which come out recently. Uh, one last year and one came out sorry, one year before last, and one came out in November. Um, just sort of in between uh, the beautiful bridesmaids, sat in between them. Um, so yeah, I, I, I do a lot of a lot of podcasts for these football times. They write for the magazines. I've uh, been on radio with BBC, uh, Talk Sport. Um, I write a week column um, for an English language newspaper over in Spain on La Liga. Um, so it keeps me pretty busy. Uh, I've had actually I've had three books come out in the last ten months, so it's been a bit hectic 
yeah. of time. And I'm currently working. I've got the uh, uh, my sixth book is coming out in um, April, mid-April, which is about Chelsea and the 2012 European Cup of Champions League in New Orleans, it's called. And then I'm currently working through uh, a book for 2023, which looks at the great Ajax teams of the early 70s that won three successive European Cups. I'm a massive fan of Dutch football. Yeah. Um, I was just at my sort of impressionable years when you know the great Ajax teams and Dutch teams came to fruition. So that's why um, I, I tend to sort of write a lot about Dutch football because it just entranced me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you write in the book, I think in, in, in the introduction, you open with that uh, at the time that you saw Cruyff's Barcelona at uh, Aston Villa. Do you want to kind of talk a little yeah. bit about like the impression that had on you? Yeah, I mean, he was sort of toward the end of his career then, but um, it was, uh, you know, as I say, I'm a massive advocate of Dutch football. I love Dutch football. And when uh, Villa drew uh, Barcelona, I think it was the UEFA Cup um, uh, tournaments, uh, I had to go. I think it was about sort of October, November, so I'm fairly in the competition. But it was a, a typical wet night in Birmingham. I used to live in Warsaw, which is just north of Birmingham. So a bit of a travel to get there. But um, the pitch was absolutely sodden. Um, and Cruyff um, was, was playing for Barcelona. And it, it's it's really weird. But he's, I've seen some great players in my lifetime. Um, both Ronaldo's, Messi, um, uh, Ronaldinho, and, and Cruyff is right up there. These players, it's sometimes like, I mean, I'd sense stupid to say it, like their feet don't actually touch the ground. Mm. Whereas, you know, the mere mortals on the pitch were sort of slogging through the mud. Cruyff was like like a pond skater gliding yeah. over the surface. And uh, it's got a wonderful goal that night as well. And uh, I, I mean, I'd say I was in transportable football from, from an early age, my sort of uh, mid-teens. Uh, but it was great to see. It's, you know, they say about the Grand Canyon, it's the one thing in life that doesn't disappoint when you go to see it. Yeah. Well, same true of Cruyff. That was the same for Cruyff. Did you you yeah. went along, just I presume, just to see Cruyff, right? That was oh, your... Yeah. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and then, so moving on to um, our main subject to talk about the Dutch football, uh, in particular the 70s. I think it's a very interesting story about um, basically how the national team sort of came from nothing because you have the period, you know, They'd been to the the World Cups before the war, but nothing nothing since. So, how come Dutch football basically exploded both in the club sides with the you know success with um, in in the European Cup with Ajax, yeah. and then also at the World Cup? Like, what 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 changed? It's a crazy story. It's an absolute crazy story. Before they reached the seventy four World Cup finals in in Germany, um, the Dutch national team had a, a a record in the World Cup equivalent to that of Luxembourg. They hadn't won a single game in a World Cup finals tournament, although they attended a couple, um, as you say, pre-war. Um, they hadn't qualified since the uh, 1938 tournament, so the 32 yeah. years. They, I mean, I'll sort of come back to 74, but just to touch on how, how, how weird Dutch football is. They got to the final in 74, in the first time they qualified for 30-odd years. Yeah. They got to the final four years later, again losing to the host, the hosts. And uh, didn't qualify again till I think it was 1992. Absolutely crazy. Um, Dutch football is always, I always liken Dutch football to a flame. It burns yeah. really, really brightly, but it doesn't burn for long. Uh, and, you know, there's there's many theories. I touch, I touch on some of, the, some of the theories about, you know, why there was this great um, bursting of the flame in the 70s. And, you know, there's, there's, there's a couple of, of theories. Um, main theories one is which it was the development of total football 
which uh, Rinus Nichols at, at Ajax and uh, Ernst Happel at um, Rotterdam, at, uh, in Rotterdam had sort of picked up, although the history of total football is lost in the mist of time. Times it goes back to Jack Reynolds at Ajax in, you know, in the 30s. Um, and the other thing was there was a crop of exceptionally talented players put together by those two those two coaches. Uh, so the, the reality is it's probably a lot from column A and a lot from column B. Um, mm-hmm. But they were you know, a, a, a terrific team, um, the Orangers, especially in 74, because Cruyff was there in 74, he wasn't there in 78. Yeah. Um, but I, I spoke to several um, Dutch journalists and, and authors of football, Football authors in the Netherlands who sort of, you know, studied this period, and you know, there's this sort of um, there's a guy called Jan Herman de Bruyne who's a quite famous journalist over in the Netherlands, and he said to me, "There's nothing, there's no one in life more arrogant than a Dutchman when they have a little bit of success." And it was that arrogance that took the Orange to so much success in '74, but in the end, it was also their bane. You know, they in the final when they played West Germany and they, they scored in. So the minute before, you know, the first German player to support was my officials at the Onion yeah. Bad after Niskin's penalty. And instead of hammering on to get the set, try and get the second goal and kill the game off, um, they decided they wanted to humiliate the Germans. And obviously, we, we have to remember this is sort of 30 odd years after the end of the Second World War. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the uh, the Dutch players of that, of that era, their parents, uh, uncles and other relations, was in in the Dutch uh, the occupation, uh, Dutch occupation by the Germans. So there was a, that seething resentment, still bubbling away. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a massive thing. Um, Wim Hannigan, who played in that uh, in that game, I think he I think he, he lost his brother in a in an air raid. Um, yeah, in, in the Second World War. So it was a big thing. And as I say, there's a I had, a, I had a, an interview with Rafa Honigstein uh, mentioned in the book, and uh, he says there that. If the Germans had scored inside the first minute, there's no way they wouldn't have closed the game out because they just mm-hmm. wanted to win yeah. the game. Whereas the Dutch wanted to be far more elaborate and just destroy the Germans. Mm-hmm. If you had to describe the key tenets of total football, what 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 would you say they are? Because I mean, it feels like something that I've sort of you hear and you kind of recognize it when you see it, but I'm not entirely sure exactly what. You know, you know, it's weird. In the book yeah. I'm working on at the moment, so the the Ajax book, I've got a whole chapter developed. Uh, so we developed it to what is total football, and mm-hmm. you know, but I've got interviews with, with you know several. Uh, from, um, David Winner, who wrote um, *Brilliant Orange*, uh, I've yeah. got some contact with David, and, and he gave me an interview, and he gave me his theory. I've got an uh, interview with Ruth Cole, who played in the, the Orange team and also in the Ajax team um, as well. Um, I've got interviews with. Um, uh, Peter Mullen, who was played at the same time, although he played for a different club, but it's different. It's difficult to pin down, uh, in as much as it means different things to different people. Um, yeah. Basically, there's there's lots of elements that you can trip off the tongue, and it's you know it's an ability to play in different positions. It's 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 a dedication to when you haven't got the ball to press. It's uh, you play a high line to play offside, right up to, to compress the play to uh, threaten the play play players offside. It's a comfort on the ball. No matter what position you play, be it right back, centre forward, centre half, or left wing, you've got to be able to play in the other positions as well. Mm-hmm. And I suppose this, the goal in '74 uh, World Cup final was an example of that. When Cruyff picks up the ball um, before he starts that run, where he's fetched down by Ernest in the in, uh, in the area, 
he is the last, the deepest Dutch player. There's only Jan Youngblood behind him. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, 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 it's a question I get asked quite often. Um, yeah. I, and I don't, the answer is too complex. People mm-hmm. understand it. It's it's almost an emotional thing, uh, yeah. as much as as a, as a sort of um, practical thing that you can say. It's not it's not four four two or four three three. It's not yeah. like that. It's not a formation. Mm-hmm. It's a sense almost a a, a a belief a commitment. Yeah, exactly. One of the things that I found very striking when I went back and watched some of the matches from the nineteen seventy four World Cup and also the highlights on YouTube is the something which I had not expected, you know, I'd, ex- you know, expected to see, you know, the intricate passing and the movement and everything. But the thing that found, what found almost m- more fascinating was the t- them without the ball. Because yes. on the, on this podcast, we've watched some, you know, classic game from before this. So we watched like the 1966 World Cup final between England and West Germany and also um, the 1954 Hungary against West Germany. And one of the things that's very striking, I find when you watch football from that period is the sort of time on the ball and lack of, the other team sort of pressing and yeah. then you have this these this the the netherlands and this almost almost sort of kamikaze looking like movement of the other team has the ball and there's like five of them hurtling at them and they're yeah. on this this offside line which is always yeah. on the halfway line like where did this come from because it just looks so sort of alien compared to what the other teams were were doing it's- it is an element of total football um yeah. you're, you're right when you look at it it's almost like the hunting in packs yeah to the player in possession, and you know, you see, and this this sort of pressing game that's become uh, you know an established trend across football in the last sort of I don't know five five ten years or so. This was this is nothing new. Uh, the the Dutch were doing this where are we now fifty years ago, um, but it, it it was the way Ajax played, and and uh, as well uh, as did um, uh, um, final to some extent, but not yeah. not perhaps in in a in a slightly different way. But the, the interesting thing about the Dutch defence is the goalkeeper and the two centre-backs were about the fourth or fifth choice players for those positions. Um, Hahn, Harry Hahn, who played in midfield for Ajax, was co-opted by Michels to play as a centre-back. Um, Royce Bergen was a young kid. I think he got one cap previous to the World Cup. Mm-hmm. And he played, he was actually a fullback and he was played as a centre half. Jan Youngblood, the goalkeeper, had played five minutes of international football 12 years before that game, before the yeah. opening game. Mm-hmm. And in that five minutes of a sub, he conceded a goal. And when um, there was a, a lot of discussion about the goalkeeper and position, yeah, because um, I think a lot, a lot of people wanted there was another guy Van Beveren who was supposed to be Van Beveren. Yeah, Van Beveren was a complex, a complex character. Um, he played for PSV Eindhoven and he had an injury um, a few months before the World Cup, and uh, Pete Shriver had played in, in his place in the uh, national team. Now Van Beveren um, was sort of fairly well recovered in before the tournament was selected for the squad initially. And Mikkels uh, had arranged a, a friendly before the tournament with a German club. I think it was Hamburg. I'm not sure. It might have been Hamburg. And uh, he wanted Van Beveren to play to prove his fitness. Yeah. And Van Beveren didn't want to risk it. And he said, look, if you really, really want me to play, I'll play half, but a half a go at the game, but I don't really want to. And Mikkels said, well, that's not good enough. And he kicked him out of the squad. This was... The, by far the best goalkeeper in, in, in the Netherlands and one of the best, if not the best, in Europe at the time. 
And then instead of picking the guy who had, who had covered for um, Van Beveren while he was injured, uh, I, there's a lot of talk that Cruyff was a, was a uh, big uh, influence. I opted for Yan Youngblood uh, yeah. because the argument was he was a better footballer uh, than the other poss poss possible um, mm -hmm. replacements. And yet, at this time in 1974, um, there's none of these sort of you can't play the ball back, you can't back past the goalkeeper, yeah. you can back past the goal. And in the entire tournament, and I've watched the games, as you can probably imagine, many times, I think there's only one time when Youngblood comes out of his area to, yeah. to get the ball and he just hoops it up the park. So, do you think, do you think that's almost an excuse they've sort of made? Because they can't obviously just say, we didn't like Van Beveren, we wanted our friend Youngblood in. So they sort of come well, up with this, you know, Youngblood had no connection with Ajax at all. He played for yeah. FC Amsterdam, where the club in Amsterdam at the time. And um, if Mikkels had rated Youngblood that high, that highly, when he was recruiting players, this guy called uh, Gebels, who played in the early years for, for Ajax after Nichols arrived there. And when it was time for him to be replaced, he didn't go for Youngblood. Yeah. He went for Heinz Stoy. So Youngblood had really got no great connection. But this, this was the theory that um, he, you know, he was the guy that, uh, that could play with his feet as well as, as being a, a semi decent goalkeeper. And in fairness, you have to say, you know, even with a cobbled defence, they only conceded one goal before reaching the World Yeah, Cup. that was another thing which I found super interesting yeah. because, I mean, uh, I, I mean, we watched, I think there's often a sort of comparison made between, you know, three, the great, three great triumphant failures of the World Cup, obviously. So you have Hungary in 54, then you have the Dutch team in 74, and then uh, Brazil in 82. But yeah. I mean, watching Brazil in 82, you could see why they lose because they're just, you yep. know, defending all over the place. And uh, I mean, we you watch that game against Italy and you're like, you can see, I mean, how brilliant Brazil are going forward, but at the back, they're just an absolute mess. But then you have, I mean, the Netherlands, the Dutch team, they can only concede one goal, on, like you said, on the way to the whole, on the way to the final. So they, was, they were doing, it's not as if they sort of completely neglected that other side of the game. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that, that goal they conceded, I think, was against Bulgaria. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, in the, in the 4 1 win. Yeah. There were, there were four goals up at the time, yeah. and it was an own goal uh, by uh, Kroll um, trying to cut out across. It was in the last two or three minutes of the game when they were four. And up, so it, it's not as if it mattered that much anyway. It was, and it was only a, a, it was the last group game, and they only, they only need to win to qualify. So, yeah, I mean, even in the final, um, but uh, the one, the, perhaps the, the biggest problem they had. Was uh, the two best centre backs in in the Netherlands in the era of Disney were uh, Rhinus Israel, who played mm -hmm. for Feyenoord, and Barry Holshoff, who played for Ajax. Now Holshoff was a, was an amazing talent. He only played about thirteen games for the Dutch national team as a centre half, and scored seven goals, six or seven goals, a goal every other game from centre-half, not, not as a striker. I mean, a striker's proud of that international record. Yeah. But it had a, a, a serious knee injury um, uh, a month or so, or two months before the World Cup uh, finals, and he couldn't play. And he never played for, for the Dutch again, and he was he was sort of... He destroyed his career. And uh, Rodas Israel had an injury as well, but he uh, Mikkels took him anyway to the final. But he, he came on and played a couple of substitute appearances. But the defence, um, with, with Van Beveren, and Ronis Israel and Barry Horsoff in that defence. I, I mean, you know, I, I just you can't you can bring who you like. I just don't yeah. think you can score. And uh, the, the goals they conceded in the uh, in the finals to the Germans, 
Um, the first one was a penalty, which which was an interesting. Uh, no, sorry, the first was was yes, it was a penalty. The first one was a penalty. Yeah, first one was penalty. And it's an interesting thing. There's um, um, Hotzenbein uh, is the German guy who who went down, shall we say, in the penalty area uh, under an alleged challenge. You look, I mean, I've looked this many, many times. It's questionable yeah. whether or not actually touches him. Uh, oh, no, he's Janssen. That's not on. I think it's Janssen. And I was talking to this this guy I mentioned, a young young Hamburgerina, uh, and there's a German word um, that's become co-opted into the Dutch language, and it, it's Schwalbe, which mm-hmm. actually Tran- uh, translated directly it means swallow, but it actually yeah. means like a swallow dive. Mm-hmm. And uh, basically, um, the, the the Dutch are absolutely convinced that he dived for the penalty. And Schwalbe has now become a Dutch word, and it means they use it for anything that's sharp practice in sport. Yeah. Uh, so there's, I mean, should it be a penalty? It's debatable. And Jack Taylor was refereeing, the, the English referee was refereeing the final. And a few years later, he said, he sort of, Said, I think I made a mistake, and I, I, I always say it. He almost certainly didn't fall credit to the guy for having the guts to come out and say it afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> the second goal was 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 when um, uh, Hahn was caught out, probably the first time, and looking yeah. like a midfielder playing centre half. And Muller, the the ice goal poacher, um, exploited a little bit of space. To is is Hahn the one? Is Han, is Han the defender who tries to make the tackle out wider? Yes, is he that, is. Yeah, yes, yeah, he is. yeah, he gets exposed. Yeah, um, and and it's it's strange because. Youngblood on both of the goals doesn't really make an effort for either of them. He's yeah, just, I was stands and waves the ball by. Yeah, I was gonna say, like, it's it's very, I find his reaction to both the, I mean, a penalty, I mean, whatever, it's it's you know, pretty rare to save, but with even with the other shot, it's he's just sort of caught yeah. flat footed in a way that he's you know, not able to to make a move for it. But I mean, obviously, a lot of people are kind of aware of like the the big names on this team, like Cruyff and Neskins and stuff, and Van Hannigan. But what are, who are some of these sort of um, other players on that te- great team that people were maybe like a little bit less aware of? Um, <coughs> I guess from my point of view, they're they're all pretty well. Yeah, so yeah. <laughs> perhaps you know. So in defence, perhaps the other guy that gets rarely mentioned is is, is in Serbia. Yeah, he played for Ajax many, many years, and is one of these one of the sort of pioneers of an overlapping fallback. And in many goals, I think in one of the European Cup ties for Ajax, in one of the away legs, they wanted to. He scored both goals, almost playing like a right winger, very much. Mm-hmm. In, and perhaps people would something to uh, associate him to give an idea. Uh, you see, Danny Alves used yeah. to play at, at uh, Barcelona in his prime. Not now. I mean, he's thirty-eight now, but in his prime, he was that sort of rampaging fallback but he was a great defense as well he wasn't mm-hmm. he never neglected his defense so um, i think serbia is, is one to mention and perhaps um the another couple uh, i'll pick one some midfield which is probably Vin Janssen, who yeah. uh perhaps celtic fans will know him um and love him for uh, managing celtic this season when they stopped around getting the, the 10 championship in a row um and he played for feyenoord and uh the sort of um what's the word i'm looking for uh, quiet, sort of you know, unobtrusive player. Uh, but in the second half, of basically the Dutch lay siege the German goal. Quite yeah. often, Janssen left back on on his own um, to, to sort of watch the back door, as it were. And perhaps the other one is uh, Robbie Rensenbrink, yeah. um, who, uh, strange enough, never played. Uh, well, he had to play. He played a couple of seasons uh, in uh, in. Dutch, Dutch football for, um, oh, he uh, made his name in at uh, Anderlecht, was that right? Yeah, he made his name. We went to Bruges first, 
and then went to Anderlecht and won European trophies with Anderlecht. And uh, he was he's calling, I can't, I don't know the Dutch word off the top of my head, but the snake man. Okay. Um, because he could wriggle out of it. He got this mm-hmm. ability to dribble past players and also to burst past them at an amazing turn of pace. Um, and Rensenbrink uh, had a problem. He, he spread a hamstring in the game against Brazil and he should have yeah. missed the final. But mm-hmm. he wants to miss a World Cup final and he played. He only played the first half and had to come off because the, he obviously wasn't, wasn't fit. But um, yeah, so yeah, I say to, to my mind, you know, they're, they're, they're all stars, but yeah. those are perhaps three who yeah. are less known, perhaps. So the Dutch had that this you know brilliant run to the final and were making uh, like smooth progress and then before the final there and I think with all these these games finals this gets sort of like clouded and kind of like mystery of circumstances and stuff like this and obviously you have with this one the kind of build story about the party and then Cruyff having to talk to his you know I don't know smooth things over shall we say with his wife and that kind of thing. In your research and everything that you said, do you think this played a big impact on the Dutch in the final, or do you think this is just another one of those sort of things I, that comes up after? I don't, I, I don't think it did because they didn't need any um, any more incentive to beat the Germans. Um, yeah. I, so I, you know, it was one of these things, and you know, I, I've read so much about this, and you know, it's, you don't want to say I think it's true, but there seems to be a lot of evidence to suggest it was true. Although Bill did say they'd got photographs, but they never produced them. Yeah. Um, and you're right. I mean, uh, close quote, uh, Danny was there had a extensive phone calls apparently that uh, you know to sort of protest his innocence of these things. But um, you know, footballers. And <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, the Dutch was. The, I mean, you know, there's, there's all, the old sort of saying that you know you need a united squad to sort of succeed in tournament football. You need to be sort of yeah. together. The Dutch were never that. The Dutch were never yeah. that. Uh, Kaiser, for example, um, that fell out with, um, well, actually, Cruyff fell out with Kaiser, although they were very close. They were first, Pete Kaiser was the first professional footballer at Ajax. Cruyff mm-hmm. was the second. And I think Kaiser was about four years older than Cruyff, and he was sort of had him under his wing, as it were, for a long time. Um, but uh, each year at Ajax, they have an election to decide who should be captain. And Cruyff had been captain in this 72 73 season, the last time they were in the European Cup. And for the following season, um, there was a new money brought in because uh, Stephen Kovacs had gone to manage the French national side and a guy called George Noble came in who was not up to the job and uh, they had this election and Kaiser was elected apparently um, and Cruyff never forgave him for yeah. this mm-hmm. so you know, and yet then you look, you look at the because um, I've read sport. about the sort of divisions between you know oh, the yeah. club teams and stuff like this. But you said it was you know it was even further among oh, teammates. It was, yeah. I mean, it was, it was there was a lot of personal animosity, mm-hmm. and um, in 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 the after seventy four, going towards the seventy eight, uh, sorry seventy six European Championship, Cruyff and Nieskins were both. I mean, Nieskins signed for Barcelona in the middle yeah. of the World Cup. I mean, mm-hmm. how crazy is that? And Cruyff yeah. and Nieskens were both at Barcelona. And uh, George Noble, actually, after spending one year with, with Ajax and getting the sack of winning nothing with a team that dominated European football for three years, got the job with the Dutch national team. Yeah. I mean, this is crazy. And, uh, why, why did they, if he'd failed at Ajax, why would... I don't know. I really yeah. don't know. Um, they've got this strange system um, because um, in 74, Mikkels was coach for the tournament but he hadn't qualified them yeah 
I mean, I mean Mik Mikkels went to and uh, the week of the final, right? He went back to Barcelona to manage a game, and yeah, it was the Copa del Rey for well, the, yeah. the Spanish Cup final yeah, against Real Madrid. Um, yeah, and obviously there was these two key players, Cruyff and Niskis, weren't even there. Yeah, um, but, but you know, it's 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 anything you know you could say about Dutch football doesn't surprise you because it's just just it's it's like mm -hmm. it's like a bobsleigh ride. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> It's fast and it's frantic and it's sometimes it's exhilarating, but other times it can be a right disaster. Yeah. And you know, it, there's a whenever the things are going well, somebody has to turn the table over. Mm -hmm. Somebody's got to cause a rumpus. And it's yeah, yeah. And um, as I said, you know, Mikkels um, had been parachuted in uh, a guy called Fredonk, who was uh, Czech-born, although I think he was nationalised Dutch at the time, had got them there. And the same thing happened in '78. Mm -hmm. um, was a guy called Jan Svartkreis who actually was coached all the way up to the 78 World Cup final tournament. And then Happel, Ernst Happel, was parachuted in to take over from there. It's just so crazy that the way they, they did things there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But so in, in the final, I mean, you watch it and they score the goal. And then as the story goes, they uh, were so sort of, you know, arrogant a boy. They wanted to uh, humiliate the Germans and then... Um, by not scoring the second goal of this, and then the Germans come back and win the game. But then I've sort of I've read because I think this is also like the narrative that is generally sort of told about this game, right? Like you know that you know the the arrogance of the Dutch came back to bite them. But I think I've, I read something once before, and it was kind of like a German perspective on this game. Yes. And from the German perspective, it's like, well, we started badly, but we, you know. They they got lucky, and then we we sort of you know sh were maybe were the better team in the end, and we came out on top. Yeah. How much is sort of reality matching sort of popular story? Because you know we want to have this kind of triumphant failure, and it doesn't fit into that narrative that maybe the German team were quite a decent side too. Or you know it's, what what does it work? It's it's a really interesting point. Um, as I mentioned, I, I, I was fortunate to have an interview with Rafael Honigstein. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to ask him about this specific point. And he said, because he, he came to study university in England, and he said, until he arrived in England, this narrative of the, the, the beautiful Dutch football as being unlucky and not winning the time, the, the German efficiency destroyed the view. Yeah. There's no, there's no perception of that uh, in Germany. Very much like you said, you know, they, the Dutch were good, but Germany were better, and they won. Yeah. That, that sort of thing and, yeah. and he, he said I really found it difficult for a while and then he got sort of to understand that why it was viewed differently and you know if you watch the game um, I, I'm, I'm sure you have and I've watched it several times yeah. um, and in fact well, if you watch the tournament um, the Dutch were a far better football team um, throughout the tournament than, than Germany were but West Germany you know Borsman Dorf technique you know they got the job done when it needed to yeah. be done and, you know, if the Dutch perhaps had had that mentality that Honigstein said the Germans would have had if um, if they'd gone ahead in, you know, inside the first minute or so and just bombed for the second goal, while you're on top and, you know, the, your opponents, you know, the heads, the heads ain't clear yet. Yeah. Only get the second goal, kill the game off. Um, mm. Perhaps the story would have been different. But yeah. would people have loved the Dutch so much if they had been yeah. had that mentality? I mean... You know, the, in the in the best stories, the the hero always dies in the last reel, doesn't yeah. he? You know? So I mean, there's that there's that sort of you know, the best songs are written with a broken heart. Mm -hmm. No, exactly. Um, 
And I think so. So after after seventy four, um, the the Dutch team in seventy six they lose they lose in the semi final of the European of the Euro Championships, right? And I think they then a new coach comes in again, or what's so, yeah, well, basically, um, the, we said some, there were, there were, it was a mini tournament. There was only four teams there, yeah. and uh, they played the Czechs, and it was terrible, a terrible um, uh, uh, environment. The pitch had been sodden with days of rain, and there was a gale blowing. Um, Cruyff wasn't fit; he had he had a knee injury, and probably shouldn't have played. And the referee was um, anybody of my vintage, called, you know, the infamy of, of Clive Thomas. Um, the, the three orkies terror, um, and and he was um, he was in his one of his moods, and uh, he fell out with Van Hannen. He actually said Van Hannen going off in injury to- in yeah. extra time as well. Um, so yeah, that, that they, they and that was the tournament. You know, it's 74, 76, and seventy eight. Um, the seventy six tournament was the one that in in the Netherlands think that that that's the one they they should have won. They should have won yeah. more, but that's the one they should have won the most. Yeah, because they were by far the better team. Um, yeah, and after that, that sort of fell away. Um, uh, Gobble left, and as I said, there was a guy called Jan, Jan Svartkreis. Now, Jan Svartkreis had never managed a club, professional club, in his life. He was mm-hmm. actually in the Dutch Air Force, and he'd, uh, he'd become, uh, he used to coach the Dutch military team. And a few of the players who played in the, in the 74 tournament, the uh, whole soft play. I think Kaiser came through, Van Beveren came through there, but and two or three others came through the Dutch National because of conscription okay. um, in the in the in the sort of fifties and sixties. And he was uh, he worked at the KNVB, the Dutch FA, um, in their sort of back room, as it were, coaching teams. And he was asked to stand in for three or four games while they selected him the coach. But he did really well, and he was popular with the players as well because a lot of the players knew him and Noble. Had been such a, a, a disaster uh, mm-hmm. as, as both at Ajax and, and as the yeah. uh, it was not well, he certainly wasn't respected. Van Hannigan on the day of the of the seventy six semi final fell out with him and uh, uh, basically said, you know, you're, you're up to this. And Noble, in typical um, spike terms, just dropped him, dropped okay. him out in a substitute role. He should have been playing. And Croy mm-hmm. was injured. Van Hannigan not playing, so he didn't yeah. feel the pieces. So, uh, so yeah, so Spot Grace took over, and uh, he was him who got them to the um, the, the seventy eight uh, uh, tournament in Argentina. Uh, although Happel had been seconded to, uh, but, it, to but it's 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 also unclear at this stage whether you know the coach was actually picking the team or whether it was Cruyff, because I mean, there's plenty of stories of players being. Yeah, well, uh, obviously Spot Grace. Uh, hadn't got a lot of um, capital, shall we say, not like yeah. Mick, Mickles had, and uh, he had to prove himself, although, as I say, he was popular with the players, um, but Happel did, although it officially his, his contract didn't start until the World Cup, he did want to get involved at the time, and there was a big problem. Yeah. Um, and at one stage, um, they both resigned, uh, mm-hmm. and because the, the conflict between them, and the, the Dutch FA became, and I'm trying to think of the words, so uh, forgive me if I'm, one, one was called the supervisor and one was called the the top coach or something so they gave them, <laughs> it was a case of well you know believe believe the description of how you describe how you want to if that makes you feel yeah. better and they're both yeah. going back we're, we're both equal but one of us is more equal than the yeah, other well, that, you know <laughs> i'm saying you know oh, well, you might be the top coach but i'm the supervisor <laughs> supervisor but it wasn't the top coach, it was something else but it was both were sort of uh, 
misty names that could have been interpreted either way, yeah. and there were by each one who bit satisfied that satisfied their egos. Okay. Yeah. So, and then I mean, the Dutch team at seventy-eight, they, but they are obviously missing Cruyff and Van Hannigan. So Cruyff is uh, staying at home because of this uh, break-in, you know, this traumatic experience with his family. And Van Hannigan, how come he's not? Is he? Van Hannigan is a really strong personality. Yeah. Um, and uh, in seventy-four and seventy-six, the, the players had agreed that all all members of the squad and the backroom staff would share in the pot from mm -hmm. promotional activities, regardless of who it was. And Cruyff yeah. was obviously the major uh, yeah. producer of brass for the. But it was shared out, and Van Hannigan had this uh, this reasoning that if there's somebody else doesn't clean my boots, I've got to clean them myself. So he, he should have a share as well. Well, in '78, uh, uh, three or four of the players um, decided they didn't want to put them in the pot; they wanted to keep it for themselves. And in typical Van Hannigan way, he said, "Well, I, I, this isn't the attitude I want. Uh, I'm not going to subscribe to this." And he opted out. Now this yeah. is a big. This is a big loss for Happel. Happel had uh, been manager of Feyenoord for a while, and Van Hannigan was like his presence on the field. He was the yeah. main playmaker for the Feyenoord. And when Mickles came in in '74, it was it was easy for him because the big chunk of the first team players were Ajax players who yeah. played under Mickles. Although, actually, strangely enough, um, I think the figures are that there were six Ajax players and seven Feyenoord ones. Mm -hmm. Although the Ajax players played more. Yeah, but in uh, in '78, um, Happel, the the main guy, Happel's main man, like Mickles would be to Cruyff, Van Hannigan was to Happel. And when he dip, when he dipped out of the the tournament, apparently watching it on a sit on on a Spanish beach, um, he lost his sort of his lead on the field. Um, so it, it damaged Happel uh, quite a lot um, and his way of playing. Yeah, and I, I mean. So the Dutch team got to the final in 78, but I mean, were they in any way a match for the team in, in 74 or what, you know, because be, the 74 is so well remembered and it's almost, I feel like it's somewhat almost forgotten that they were in the final again in four years later. Yeah. In 74, um, um, Mikkels picked the same players to start the game, except for one exception, which was the game against Sweden. Um, when he, he put uh, Kaiser in instead of Rensenbrink. Oh, but that on for that one game. In yeah. 78, the team would change quite often uh, from game to game. Um, and then in the situations, Sparkreuss and, and Happel's um, influence to which way they would play. And they brought a, quite, quite a lot of young players into the um, through through during the tournament, like uh, Pete Wiltschut, who I actually managed to get an interview with my ex book I'm doing at the moment. Um, uh, so that they, the team developed more as it went along, and it was when they got to the final. When they got to the final in '78. <coughs> excuse me. Um, that was probably the, they were at their epitome then. Whereas yeah. in '74, they, they they were at the best almost all through the tournament. Mm -hmm. If '78 team played '74 team, I'm pretty certain '74 team would win. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I mean, in 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 '78, I mean they they so. The the game is one one against Argentina and one of these you know one of these sort of sliding doors moments is they hit the post in oh. in the ninetieth minute which would have uh, which one of the, which would have won the game who is the player who hits the post again sorry I've forgotten Ransom Brink Ransom Brink okay yeah it's it's actually um, and I think I've got this in the book it's a it's a long free it's one each as as you say and um, and Kroll smashes this ball from the from his own off the field and the strange thing is 
the Argentine defence has been so sort of well drilled. Let the ball bounce. Mm. I, I think it's inside the penalty area or not far outside the penalty area. And then dips in and Rensenbrink comes dashing in from his left flank. And he just prods the ball past... Um, gee, I can't remember the Argentine goalkeeper's name. Anyway, he, just, he sort of star jumps and the ball... Goes and it looks like it's. I mean, from one angle I've seen, it looks like it's going in, and then it almost yeah. spins away, hits the post, and you know it was the uh, the moment where um, you know he could have been the all-time Dutch hero. All the stories would have been about Renson Brink rather than Cruyff, but yeah, exactly. That moment he passed away. But there's a great mm-hmm. passage in um, David Winner's book in Brilliant Orange, and he, he had an interview with Renson Brink, who died a few years ago, God rest his soul. Um, that uh, says he, he wished that he didn't miss by a big distance. Yeah, and then nobody would keep asking him about it because every time he does, he brings back and he thinks how close I was to immortality. Yeah, exactly. And I, I presume, I mean, imagine if if they had won the World Cup in '78. I mean, in some ways, the '74 team would almost be yeah. overshadowed in some ways. Yeah. The question, the question, the big question is, um, is if that goal had gone in, would they have been allowed to, allowed to win? Mm. Yeah, I mean, the military junta in Argentina had been so influential in the things that went on in the tournament. Um, I, was, I managed to get an interview with by one of the colleagues on, on this football times with Abraham Klein, the, the referee, World Cup referee. Yeah, and he was slated for the final. Um, he'd been the outstanding referee in the, in the tournament, but in a group game, in a group game, he'd refereed Argentina against Italy. And whereas so many other officials of the Argentina games have been, um, pressurized by the crowd and you know to give free kicks and penalties yeah. it turned down two penalty appeals which weren't penalties they're absolutely correct decisions yeah um but the argentines argentines apparently vetoed him playing but they had no they had no ability they, 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 no sanction they're allowed to do that mm-hmm. the fifa um sort of uh, gave in and the, the guy the went to uh an italian guy his name i can't remember off the top of my head um but throughout that tour that final this guy, referee, knew the only reason he was there was because of Argentina. Yeah. Now, whether that puts pressure on you or influences you to be kind to, the, to, to that team, but if you watch the game again, there's an awful lot of decisions go Argentina as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people are probably aware of the stories as well around the Argentina-Peru game where oh. the... Um... Seemed to take a little bit of. <laughs> yeah, I, I, was, I was fortunate we had uh, a guy who does a lot of podcasts with us, um, called Dr. Pete. Uh, he, he's a, he was a lecturer at Leeds University on South American studies. And he's written several books about uh, papers about football. And he, he, he sort of, the, his knowledge on this thing is, is, is amazing. And there's so much evidence that, uh, that there was collusion between, you know, the. Uh, whether it's the the uh, leader of the most young to go into the proven vessel, yeah. whether it's about money being released, whether it's about grain shipments, whether it's about swapping prisoners. When there's three things, you think, okay, it might not be true. When there's 79,863 <laughs> elements that suggest it's true, you have to take yeah. it seriously. Mm-hmm. But isn't it also, I mean, in some, <laughs> like in like in 74, the Dutch were able to sort of blame uh, the referee, Taylor, and other stuff for them losing, isn't it? in some ways, again, like a kind of somewhat nice cushion to say, well, even if we had been beaten, again, been beating Argentina, it wouldn't have been allowed to happen. I feel like it's a little bit like another crutch. Maybe I'm being too harsh on the Dutch. No, no, I don't no, know. I mean, it's a perfectly legitimate, legitimate question to ask. Um, I mean, what, 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 what this, the question is, is 
are they excuses or are they reasons? Yeah, and, no, and it's probably a little bit of it, little bit of each, you know. I mean, if, if it is a reason, and you know, in '74 they were unlucky. Well, let's put it like that. You know, I won't say they're cheating, but they were unlucky. In '78 yeah. they may well have been cheated. No, um, I feel, yeah, exactly. I feel like I'm sounding a little bit like Roy Keane. Um, this is widely <laughs> off topic, but when when Ireland failed to qualify for the for the 2010 World Cup with the playoffs yes. against uh, France. France when when Thierry Henry handballs the ball yep. and it puts the cross and puts it in gas and scores and then obviously in in Ireland you know we were tearing our hair out breaking our Henry the Hoovers and that kind of thing just you know complete <laughs> personal pandemonium and Roy Keane was at manager of Ipswich at the time and was told uh was was asked about his opinion about it at a press conference and he was like if i was the manager i wouldn't even mention the handball i'd say why didn't somebody go in and put their head in it why didn't paul mcshane or someone that you know headed a ball headed the ball away rather than it running through to to Henri. anyway i don't <laughs> no i mean I, so I guess the thing is with tv and radio punditry i mean i've been on talks a couple of times in the past and the thing is there is be controversial yeah. If you want to get invited back, be controversial because nobody wants to listen to somebody's boring says, oh, "Yeah, it should have been a, it should have been a penalty, but we should have got, got beat, yeah. or should have won, or whatever." They like contra- controversy. Yeah, uh, exactly. that's what gets people listening. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, yeah, so I, I take on board what you're saying, and as, as I say, you know, so, suddenly you know the diff- the 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 border between a reason and excuse is, is often blurred. Yeah, exactly. I've got. I mean, we have a question here from Fergus Young on on the '78 World Cup, and he he'd okay. want to know. Uh, if Gary thinks the Dutch would have won the final if Cruyff and Van Hannigan had gone to the 78 World Cup? It's, that's a wonderful question. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm almost tempted to say they would have won the World Cup if either yeah. had gone. Um, as I say, uh, um, Van Hannigan was a massive loss for Happel. Almost, Happel would have been a, for, sorry, for, for Happel, Van Hannigan would have been a bigger boost than mm-hmm. Cruyff. Um, the the problem was with with, with Cruyff, um, and, and for obvious reasons, the way that it played was structured around Cruyff. Yeah. And when he pulled out of the tournament uh, before '78, um, Svart Cruyff wanted uh, Rensenbrig to play the Cruyff role rather than change the entire system. And Rensenbrig was a wonderful player, um, one of these massively underrated players because he was very quiet and unassuming. He said, but he said he did really well with playing with the Van Dijk and played wonderfully well for the for the Dutch played in both World Cup finals uh, and the 76 European Cup finals, European Championship final as well. Um, and he hadn't got the blustering arrogance, shall I say, that Cruyff had about mm-hmm. his ability and that, that he didn't want to do it. Yeah. Um, it's very similar to a situation in 74 when Hahn was. A midfield player was was asked to play centre half, and he didn't want to do it. But Cruyff persuaded him. Mm-hmm. And Cruyff wasn't there to persuade Rensselaer to be Cruyff, so it sort of didn't yeah. really work that way. Um, so yeah, I think I, I mean they weren't the Dutch weren't far away from winning the tournament. Yeah, um, they lost in extra time to um, to the to the hosts. Um, so yeah, I, I mean yes, I, I think um, I think if it was if, if they had both. Yeah, yeah, I think that would have put it. Yeah, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, yeah. and Van Hannigan would probably try to be more important as a side. Be more important than quite that. Yeah, that's interesting. I have. Uh, <laughs> I know we're running running out of time, but uh, I have. I have one further question, which is kind of maybe more difficult to answer. And I just want to maybe 
if the Dutch had won one of the, I mean, either one of these World Cup finals or or the Euros in '76, do you think they would be as fondly remembered? Because I think, like, I mean, the Hungarian team in '54 is remembered far more than West Germany in '54, or I mean. In, in 1982, so many people could rem- remember the Brazil team from that, com- but can barely remember who won it. So do you think that it's sort of an integral part of the story is that they failed to win? Or do you think that it would only add to their legacy if they'd won one of the World Cups? It's, it's a great question. It's, it's a terrific question. And it's one I've sort of, uh, sort of been asked a couple of times. Cruyff had this thing that he said, um, the tragedy of, of, of the loss of 74 is that because it made the Dutch the beautiful losers. And mm-hmm. um, there's a, a very, very famous Dutch um, author called Orkcock, who's just written a, a biography of, of Cruyff, who's kind enough to give me an interview for the book I'm working on at the moment. He wrote a famous book. Uh, I can't, I don't know what it is in Dutch, but it's, it's, it's 74, We Were the Best, yeah. is the title in English. And he sort of analyzes that how this, the Dutch carried this burden of not winning 74 for so long. And it was almost like a poisoned a boil that had built up and it had, yeah. they had to exercise the, that 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 sort of thing to to move on and they uh, you know they're carrying the cross of 74 for a long time almost damaged dutch football strangely enough yeah um but but would they have been i don't i don't know i don't know um would if they don't want 74 <coughs> would they have been as regard as highly regarded as the brazil team that won in 70. yeah I almost think they would have been. Yeah, they, probably, they, right? They would have gone through the entire tournament without losing a single game mm-hmm. if they'd have won the final. Um, whereas in 78, obviously they lost, they lost to Scotland. Uh, I think the regard for the Dutch team if they'd won in 74 would be different. Perhaps not lesser or greater, but perhaps different. Yeah. No, I think there would be less of a sort of um, maybe like a mythology kind of around them. Yeah, like that yeah. kind of aura. Yeah. That, uh, yeah. That but, is, as I said, Crowe said it, was, it, it made Dutch football, they, they, they sort of adopted this uh, persona of being the beautiful losers. Mm-hmm. And do you think, does this sort of beautiful losers thing still continue? Because obviously they won the Euros in, in 88, but I mean, I, I do remember, uh, you know, before the World Cup when they played against Spain, and obviously it was a very different Dutch side and sort of attitudes and approaches, but there was still this thing about, you know, this great footballing nation which has never won the World Cup. Yeah. Um... Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's a difficult thing. Um, the team that won in uh, the European Championship in, uh, in, in Germany um, under Mikkels, Mikkels are back there. This was an entirely different team. They didn't play total, they weren't playing total football. It was a different yeah. formation, different way of playing because the players were different and the players hadn't come through <coughs> the, uh, the Ajax and Feyenoord clubs of that era. So they're playing a different sort of football. Um, so, the Dutch winning in the in the European Championship was almost a lesser success. Yeah. Does that make sense? Um, yeah. For, for, for the beautiful football, it was a lesser success. Although, as I say, you know, if you want to win a title, win a title, you wouldn't say whether you can. In they were still a great team. Although, strangely mm-hmm. enough, in the final, the Soviet Union were probably the better team. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, if you watch the game, I watched the game several times, and there, and I think you know they had a couple of bad injuries. Potosov uh, was injured, and I can't remember the guy who was injured. Lenikov. Um, so they were they, they struggled in the final, but, but they were still probably the the, the struggling for still a better team. But yeah, I mean, they, oh, in uh, in that championship, they got over the line. Yeah, it's the the crucial thing. Um, 
That's it. Uh, all right. Thank you so much for your time, Gary. I really, I really enjoyed this. Who, where does the title of the books, sorry, did you come up with the title of the book, Beautiful Brides? Yeah. Because I thought it was probably the, the best named football book I've come across in the many a year. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for that. Actually, <laughs> it came out of um, a podcast we were doing a couple of years ago, and it stuck in my mind. We were talking about, um, I don't know which tournament it was. <clears throat> And uh, we were saying about, um, it might have been the Hungarians, I can't remember, okay. um, but we were saying about the team that won it. And I said, I, had this, I remember this phrase, sometimes you go to a wedding and the bride isn't the most beautiful girl there. Sometimes the bridesmaids <laughs> are, are more beautiful. <laughs> and it stuck in my mind. And when I came to write the book, it, it came back to me. And I thought, well, yeah, I could stick that in. Because it captures all the things. They were they were more beautiful than the brides yeah. that won the tournaments. Um, they were the bridesmaids. All right, exactly, well. Gary. Where can people find more of your your work, and also what 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 books or stuff that people do you have coming out in the coming uh, well, coming well, year I, that people look forward to? Yeah, I have my Twitter page, which all my stuff is always on there, which is uh, at all underscore blue underscore days. Um, on Amazon, I have my own Amazon page on there. So if you just go to Amazon, type in Gary Thacker, all my books are on there. Mm. Um, and if you ever listen to these Football Times podcasts, you can catch me on there as well. Um, I said I've got a book coming out in April, which is about the Chelsea 2012 um, uh, Champions League triumph. It's called Out of the Blue. Chelsea isn't yeah. like the 2012 Championship. And then next year, um, I've got, I'm working on the current book now, which is um, about the Ajax teams, the same, which is called the Dutch Masters, how Ajax is total football conquered Europe. That'll be okay. out in uh, April 2023. All right, sounds brilliant. And I, I'd encourage everyone, if they're interested in the subject, to check out the book. It's definitely well worth a read. Bless you. Thank you very much, for Alex. Thank you. All right, Gary, thank you so much for joining me. I'll let you get on with your evening. Thank you. An absolute pleasure. Thank you very much, Alex. Cheers. All right. Take care. Bye now. Podcast Network.